Welcome to the Special Needs Kids Are People Too podcast with Amy Bodkin, EDS. Amy is an autistic adult who also happens to be a school psychologist turned special needs consultant and public speaker. She's also a homeschooling mom to two autistic kiddos, a yoga instructor, a card-carrying Trekkie, and an all-around fun person. And last but not least, Amy is an advocate for seeing every child as a person, not a diagnosis. Because a special needs kid is just like any other child, just more so. Here's Amy Bodkin. Hi. I'm Amy Bodkin, coming to you from the blanket fort in my office, and welcome to Special Needs Kids Are People Too. Last time we talked about how sometimes diagnoses can be used to dehumanize people. Um, And today I wanted to talk about how dehumanization can impact education. Now, before we go any further... I want to make sure that I say I am extremely thankful for teachers, as well as for the 1975 Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that is supposed to ensure a free and appropriate education for all in the form of an individual education plan. You're going to hear me talk about those a lot in this episode. The 1975 Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is often shortened to IDEA, and it was the landmark legislation that basically gave kids with learning disabilities and developmental disabilities and um, developmental differences the opportunity to have an education that was suited to them. Previously, a lot of children were sent to um, insane asylums or uh, mental institutions. We don't have those anymore. Um, But that's only been a recent change. Um, Best I could tell from my research, the last one closed in the United States in 2008. That's crazy to think about. And there was no special education whatsoever until 1975. And so you don't have those guarantees before that. So that that was a huge step forward. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of different aspects, though, that we can talk about, you know, What about today? Is IDEA and IEPs, are they truly ensuring a free and appropriate education that's also in each child's least restrictive environment? Are we giving them as much freedom as we possibly can to learn in the way that works for them? Some states I know will skirt the issue using school lawyers to come up with ways to get around this, Uh, especially when it comes to homeschooled students and sometimes even private school students. IDEA is a federal um, law, and it applies to all children, regardless of homeschool or private school status. However, 
some states have written in um, ways to define homeschoolers not as private school students, and some districts have been known to deny um, private school students access to services. And there's definitely a lot of talk that keeps a lot of times parents from asking, um, thinking that they can't access those services. So I don't think that it's always happening. But the main thing that I really wanted to look at today is the IEPs, the Individual Education Plans. These plans are meant to make sure that each child has that free and appropriate education. But I think the first question we need to ask is, appropriate by whose definition? Is it an education appropriate by the child's definition, or the parent's definition, or the school's definition? And I think most of the time, it is what is appropriate according to the school's definition, which bears some scrutiny. But with IEPs, I think they can also serve to de-evolve into a document protecting the district from legal recourse rather than what was intended, um, creating a way of securing uh, students' rights to an education appropriate to their individuality. And I think a lot of times, if parents don't fully know the law and their rights, which quite honestly, it's not something that you would learn about unless you have a child who has an IEP and you suddenly realize you need to know this, um, then it's basically the district against a parent. And that really tips the balance of power awkwardly. Now, parents do have access to advocacy groups, and there are definitely numbers that you can call to get advocacy help. It's included in the IEPs. Well, at least in the paperwork you're supposed to receive when you sign it. But if you don't know anything about IEPs, I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about, because I really think that this is something we dress it up with all kinds of legal jargon, but it's really not that hard because at the end of the day, we're talking about a plan for helping a student learn. And if we think about it in practical terms, I think that we can see that we've got some room for improvement here. So IEPs are supposed to be SMART, meaning specific, measurable, attainable, results-oriented, and time-bound. And this abbreviation has uh, really influenced the way that IEPs' goals are written. So I have gone through a bunch of IEPs that I have access to from different states all over the United States. And I have collected a sampling from all different states that I had available at the time. 
And I want to share some of those examples. The information and details has been changed, but I also know information about each of these cases. So I can kind of show where I see some of the holes. First example is, by the end of the school year, while listening to a story during structured language activity, John Doe will answer interchanging who, what, where questions about the story with 80% accuracy and visual support. Now, this is a child who has a receptive language level of two years and two months and an expressive language level of two years and ten months. That goal is not appropriate for the language level of that particular child. And also, if you notice, it's telling you what John Doe will do. It doesn't tell us what the school district is promising to do to support this child, which is the whole point of the IEP. The IEP is saying, is the school district saying, this child needs an individualized plan, and this is what we are going to do to make sure that this child succeeds. But the way this is worded, it places the responsibility on John Doe without giving any information as to how they're going to support this happening, except perhaps to just keep doing whatever they're doing that doesn't seem to be working over and over again. So I thought about ways that this one could be reworded, and this is one of the ideas I came up with. The reading specialist will pull John Doe for 15 minutes a day, three days a week, for visualizing and verbalizing. Progress will be measured by the consistency of the reading specialist's implementation and the growth of the student in comprehension skills on a psychological achievement test at the end of the school year. Complex skills like comprehension sometimes require a little bit more time to show significant progress. And so measuring at the end of the school year for the student is reasonable as long as the plan to help that student was thought about at the beginning of the year and set up to be done consistently. And that's really what can end up being the problem because we can have all these great plans, but if we don't hold people accountable to what needs to be done and what they've promised to do, then those plans aren't worth anything. And now for a word from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by me, Amy Bodkin Consulting Services. You can find what we have to offer professionals at amybodkin.com. We offer consulting services for professionals, whether you are an author or a therapist who works with children, especially if you have questions regarding autistic clients and the autistic experience. I bring my professional experience, having been trained as a school psychologist, as well as my personal experience as being an autistic adult with a variety of learning disabilities, and as a mom to kids who also are autistic and have a variety of learning disabilities. You can also go to our website and check out the new course that we have available that is specifically geared towards ABA therapists. The purpose of this course is to examine what we are doing as professionals 
and how we may work to strengthen our ethics and to reframe the way that we think about children to provide a more positive, nurturing environment that will lead to more long-term positive goals as well as reducing trauma in children. Check it out at amybodkin.com. Here's another example. John Doe will remain on task during academic and non-academic tasks that does not exceed 15 minutes with two or less verbal prompts. Receptive language for this child is one year, six months, and expressive language is two years, three months. So I don't know of any one or two-year-olds or kids with those language levels who are going to pay attention for 15 minutes. It's completely developmentally inappropriate. Um, another way that you could potentially write that one would be maybe the teacher will implement switches in the part of the brain being utilized during class at 10 to 15 minute intervals to match the attention span of the students, including John Doe. This will be measured by records review of teacher's classroom notes. So that's a possibility, a little bit more reasonable. Um, here's another example. John Doe will visually track an object or shape without verbal cues as implemented by the special education teacher as measured by the following assessments, observation, demonstration, by the end of the school year. This child has a spatial processing disability. So, and there's no supports at all given to this child to help with visual tracking except to just do it again and again and hope that eventually they reach the kind of improvement they want to see. That's ridiculous. There should be something provided for this child to make it work. Otherwise, we're just banging our head against a wall trying to do it over and over again until we finally break the wall. Here's another one. With prompting and support, John Doe will complete addition and subtraction sentences in four out of five opportunities. This child's receptive language measured at 2.5 years old. Expressive language was three years, two months. So yet again, we've got a child being asked to do addition and subtraction problems when we're still working on basic language communication skills. This doesn't mean that we can't assume competence from students. That's not the problem. What we need to do is make sure that we're not pushing them harder than they're ready for. And we can still assume competence by providing more passive um, opportunities for enjoying more challenging work but we still need to make sure that we're not pushing that and that we're focusing a little bit more on areas that seem to be a real struggle. So for math, our goal is not to teach more math. Our goal is to improve communication so that we can teach more math. Communication is fundamental to every subject moving forward. Here's another example. By the end of the school year, John Doe will be able to use a Venn diagram to determine similarities, differences, and commonalities between two things with 80% accuracy on four out of five opportunities, as measured by teacher observation, work samples, and data collection. 
the level of support is one verbal prompt. This is a child whose receptive language is one year, 11 months, and expressive language is three years, one month. A Venn diagram, those are usually introduced in math classes by at least later elementary school. It seems that our biggest challenge is being able to communicate and develop better relational skills so that we can discuss different types of math topics. Here's another example. John Doe will state how he is feeling and provide an explanation for that feeling on 80% of his attempts. This child's receptive language level was 4.7 years, so 4 years, 7 months. Expressive language was 2 years, 6 months. Expressing feelings is a rather complex communication skill. Usually with a lot of kids, especially those with language delays, we're not seeing that really until we're getting to closer to five, especially with language delays. It takes a little bit longer. Um, concrete things are much easier to express. That's blue. This is hard. That's soft. Those are things that we can observe. Feelings are much more difficult because they are harder to observe. I mean, yes, we look at facial expressions theoretically, <laughs> but different people have different expressions. So it's not quite as easy as we like to think it is. Ask any autistic adult. <laughs> um, here's another example. Last one. John Doe will increase his skills in the area of reading comprehension progressing from prompted to independent as measured by teacher observation, teacher-made assessments, progress monitoring, and district-state assessments. This is a student who has a weakness in concept imagery, who does not make full-color movies in his mind of what he's reading. And that's how we remember things. The mind encodes things visually because a picture's worth a thousand words. And so it takes up less space in the brain if we can visualize it. Now, not everybody does that, but generally speaking, most people seem to. It's why when you go see a movie of a book you've read, you go, huh, that's not quite how I pictured it. It's subconscious, but it's something that we do, and this, this child doesn't do that. And so comprehension has been a real problem. So how is this child supposed to be improving this? There is no plan given here for how to make that happen. Here's an example of an IEP goal I wrote for a homeschool student. So a little bit different setting. John Doe will be provided with a calm, relaxing, and low-demand environment in which to learn until his internalizing behavior level decreases from clinically significant on the violin 2 to average. Specifically, this will include time spent each day in one of the following activities, cosmic kids yoga, project mindful movement, sensory activities, and time on his tablet. We have to think about what the child needs to be successful. A child who is anxious is not going to be successful in learning. A child who can't communicate at all is not going to be successful in learning. They're going to be hampered. There may be some things you can learn without any kind of form of communication, but 
there is a limit to how much and what you can learn without communication. We are relational beings. We depend on relationship to be able to learn and grow and thrive. And that's really the wonderful thing about teachers. Teachers are at their best when we can get out of the way, (laughs) let them have a smaller number of students where they can connect relationally and passionately about subjects that they love. And what we're doing with our IEPs, we're not coming up with a plan that's designed to work for the child. And we're pushing children to do things that their brains are not ready to do. And we're also with IDEA, but mostly with No Child Left Behind. That was another uh, education act that came later. Um, it's the one that has ensured that we have to have state testing every year. And because of that, teachers often have to teach at grade level, regardless of whether or not a child is at grade level. I once had a student, he was in seventh grade, and he was working on learning how to plug in, I believe, the quadratic formula into a calculator for his state testing. But he was acting up in class all the time. So I pulled him for a student interview and I asked him if I could do anything to get you to behave in class, what would it be? And he said, I'd like to learn to read. That school had failed that child. It wasn't the teachers specifically, some teachers, but not all teachers. It was the school. The institution. He had a wonderful special education teacher who was not assigned to him, who pulled him every day. And he improved by several grade levels in reading before he left that school to about a third, maybe fourth grade level. So when we're not thinking about where they're at and when we're worried about test scores, which we have to be because funding is tied to test scores. And if you don't have good test scores, then you will lose funding. Basically, school districts have become a machine. Not the teachers themselves, not the staff necessarily, but the districts themselves. They're not immune to the pressures of wanting to make sure that they receive funding. And trying to make sure that that happens. There are sometimes some very unethical games that are played with numbers with school districts. I once was a part of a school district where one of um, the schools turned in their numbers to the state department and they had all their kids in inclusion. And then after they turned those numbers in, they called IEP meetings with all the parents and bullied them into putting their kids in self-contained classrooms so that they would not have to be um, included for state testing that year. 
so it made their inclusion numbers look high and their testing numbers look higher than they should be. So sometimes people are going to look at what I'm saying and say, okay, but how do we do those things for every single student? It's not possible. You know, this is idealistic, Amy. The most important part to a child's education, just like a plant, is the atmosphere in which they're placed. Yes, physical aspects play a role, but the most important part of the educational atmosphere is relationship. And that means putting more funds towards having more teachers with smaller classroom sizes. So we can get out of the teacher's way and let them do what they do best. Connect with students on a subject they're passionate about. I firmly believe in teachers. I think we have to be very careful to not let bureaucracy keep us as individuals from doing the things that we know we need to do to support children. Thanks for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys next week about an exciting upcoming project. We hope you had fun listening to today's episode and gained some new insights into the wonderful variety of people in our world. You can find out more about Amy's advocacy work at amybodkin.com. And remember, special needs kids are people too.